So uh, it's been on my mind a lot that Easter obviously is right around the corner. And then um, as we start to see the commercials change, you know, everybody seems to like the Cadbury bunny, you know, the, the bunny rabbit that sounds like a chicken. That's when we know that, you know, that season is upon us. That's typically how, as a society, we embrace that. And uh, more and more, I, I hear people ask me questions about, you know, what is the Easter bunny? What is the Easter basket? What does all of that really have to do with any of it? And, and I'm surprised sometimes that most people don't realize that after Jesus rose, there was, a, there was panic, there was fear, there was uncertainty. They were freaking out. They didn't know what happened to the body. Where was he? There was a search that took place. And so Christians, as they wanted to celebrate, were really hindered from that because most of the people around them were not celebrating. They were either in fear of the Pharisees or in fear of the centurions or Romans. And, you know, everything was kind of kept on the down low. They wanted to celebrate. They saw it. They saw what happened. They, know, they knew what happened. They believed what happened. So when the pagans would celebrate spring, they would celebrate the newness of life, the, the beginning of springtime. In that pagan ceremony, there would be eggs and all sorts of things. And in the middle of that is when Christians began to say, hey, let's celebrate our risen Lord. We can actually celebrate. We can go outside of our homes, have a big party, have a feast, get everyone together. We blend in. But in our hearts, we know what we're celebrating is very different. It was an opportunity to celebrate. So I've really felt uh, in my heart a lot that we need to be really careful as, as Christians as we go to celebrate Easter, that on the day after Easter, we don't put him back in the tomb. And back in the tomb, meaning in our own lives, we don't just say, well, that was a great day. I got a new suit. I'm ready to go. Looking good. Had an egg. Cadbury's awesome. Roll. And we forget all about the fact that Jesus rose and he lived and he continues to live today and he wants to impact our lives on a daily basis. We don't have to wait another 364 days to celebrate that. We celebrate newness every morning. That's how things changed for us. But I wanted today to maybe take us to that day or that time. They say after Jesus rose from the dead, it said that he appeared to a great number of people and that miracles happened. So I'd like to start there today and then maybe work our way back into understanding why it is so important that he lives a resurrected presence in our lives every day. Can we watch that clip?
That's why. No one ever touches me. In that moment, his life was changed. The healing was done. Jesus had touched him. No one ever touches him. He's a leper. He's diseased. He's contagious. But Jesus didn't hesitate. This is why we celebrate a risen Savior. When the centurion is going in, why do you follow him? He was still perplexed. He still couldn't get it. He still didn't realize that a risen, resurrected Savior was walking among them. But in those moments of compassion, as he was showing the power and nature of Christ, things were changing. That man was healed. Jesus had reached him where he was. Did you notice that Christ went to him? He didn't say, hey, or go get him some more, would you? He wasn't acting like a king. He was acting like a savior. We need to be careful not to miss those things. That as we, as we celebrate Easter, we remember no matter where we are, no matter what's going on with us, he will come to you. He will meet you where you are. There's an intensity to Easter. But it's joy-filled. Do you think that man lived another day of sorrow? Another day of rejection? Another day of being tossed aside? Another day of not seeing his family? Do you think that's where he was? Oh, in that moment, that brief encounter with Christ, everything in his future changed. In our personal, independent by ourselves, moments with Jesus, everything in our future changes in those moments. Everything. Because the fingerprints of Christ in your life from that point forward. So why do you follow him? If someone asks you that question, and you can tell, was that Thomas or what? Where are we going? Dad, dad, buddy. It happened. You knew immediately what disciple that was. But in that moment, watching those things, he was able to look at this and say, that's why, that's why we follow him. We've seen him do this hundreds of times. They were not shocked. They knew what was going to happen before he ever finished getting through with the fish. He said, What's missing, though, in that quotient and in that understanding that we now have is that Jesus said, far greater things than I have done, you will also do. And had they realized that at that moment, we would have seen everyone sitting around Jesus get up and run to the man. But we didn't. They watched. That's kind of where we are today, I think. We watch a lot. Got to take some risks. Anyway, it seems like actually that's the wrong one. <laughs> so why do you follow? Can you answer that question? Can you tell the story? Do you know what happened? It occurred to me that, that maybe we have to work from the resurrected Savior backwards so that uh, we remember why we follow him. Why do I follow him? Why, why is it important to me? Well, there was this, uh, the tomb. There was a tomb, and, and Jesus, after he was crucified, he was laid in the tomb, and he was wrapped up, and they tested the shroud, and they've done all this scientific data. But no matter what they've done, it 
it's still empty. And the centurions, they sealed it. And they put an official seal on the tomb. And they put two guards beside it because they didn't want the body stolen. Because he, they thought that the believers would lie and they'd hide it and just claim that he rose. The Pharisees didn't have that. But then all of a sudden there was something that happened and there was this dramatic roar, it's described there. And the stone rolled away and Jesus is not there and they could not explain it. And heaven forbid an official not be able to explain something. Do we not live in that right now? The over-explanation of everything we should think, believe, feel, see, all of that. Sometimes, miraculous is unexplainable. But I'm okay with the unexplainable that's attached to Jesus because that gives me my explanation. He does it because he said he would and he always keeps his promises. Even this one. When he had spoken in a riddle. <coughs> you will see me, then you won't see me again. But there it was. I'll get these buttons right in a minute. But before the tomb, before his body made it to the tomb, there was a horrible day. There was a day when they, they crucified him. And, and crucifixion was not uncommon. There, there are stories that talk about how roads were lined with crosses of people crucified for things. It was kind of their standard operating procedure. That's why there were two thieves. It wasn't so much that it would ultimately become symbolic to us because of Jesus' actions, but that it was so commonplace. And then as Jesus hung on the cross, they grew weary and bored of the process. That's part of the reason why the spear went inside, because how you die on a cross is you suffocate. The pain is one thing. But the suffocation, the inability to breathe in, it's a long, painful death. But they were bored with it. They wanted him to be miserable. They wanted him to die, be gone. Let's show these people what idiots they are for believing. And in that moment, there was a, the splitting of the curtain, which is enormous because the curtain weighs thousands of pounds. It's like one of those guys that they used to come to school and they rip phone books to show how powerful they are. It's, it's that kind of feat of strength that was unexplainable. And then the earthquake and the panic. And I believe in some people the epiphany of, oh my gosh, what if he was the son of God? That, that, that sheer panic that followed that and the sorrow of all those who had followed. I, I've often thought, if I lived in that time, how close to that cross would I have stood? If you're scared of the Pharisees, you stand in the back because you knew after he was gone, they were after you next. It's kind of like the Declaration of Independence. And you see John Hancock's writing really big. Do you know why he wrote so big? Because the king had said, anybody that signs that document, I'm going to kill him. So he said, bring on! It wasn't arrogance, it was... I'm all in. All in. Sacrifice in the Old Testament literally meant to die. When you talk about sacrifice, even early on in his teaching, he was not hedging his bets. He wasn't going to say, uh, I'll give up, you know, uh, caffeine on Tuesday and we'll give that up for a 
lady who told that thing. No, it was, he knew what he was talking about. There was no other definition or variation of the word sacrifice. It meant to not. But as we go backwards again, there was again that horrible moment where they, they shoved the crown of thorns on his head. And the thorns were so long that they were like nails. And I've seen these trees, and they are. They are huge, enormously thick thorns. And they beat him, and they treat him horribly. And they made fun of him. And they did everything they could to ridicule him. And oh, by the way, carry your own cross. Oh, but before that, there was Gethsemane. And Jesus prayed, take this up from me. And I don't think it was because he didn't trust his father to take care of him or the process. My own personal opinion is, in that moment where he realized what was coming to pass, and he looks around and he sees the disciples sleeping, I think he's thinking to himself, have I done enough? Did they realize the intensity of this? Did they realize the magnitude of what's coming? Did they get it? Because they fell asleep, remember? But then before that, there was the Last Supper. And this is the one you always see. You know, the one that the Michelangelo did the moves, you know, the big fancy Last Supper. It wasn't like this, guys. It wasn't like this. They sat on the floor and the table was shaped like a cake. It's normal. You sit on the floor, you pass the bread around. It was a, a communal table. Everyone could see one another. So it didn't mean this or that. It was, but I guess it's Jesus thing. I don't know. But we see that they're, they're all there. And even there, Jesus is talking about, hey, you know, there's one of you that will betray me. He's letting them know, I know what's going on. I know what's coming. I know resurrection is coming. I see it. I know my father's plan. I, I'm all in. I'm trying to prepare you as best I can, but if I tell you all the things that we've just talked about, we'll freak out half of them sitting at the table. There are questions. Even when he said, there'll be a time you see me, then you won't, then you'll see me again. And what did they, what? The questions ensue. What? He was trying his best to help them understand. But before that, all those people that we just talked about, cheering, there were after the crucifixion, they were all standing there, all of a sudden their hearts had changed, they weren't really interested anymore, the same people that said, Barabbas! When they had the option to choose Jesus or Barabbas, those same people were here. They were here. Oh, Jesus! Jesus! And they put the palms on the floor because that was a, helping them, it's kind of like putting carpet under your feet. Let me make, let me make sure you know you feel welcome. That did not take long to make that transition, did it? There were disciples. Before all of that stuff happened, there were disciples. Kind of a lot of food, probably. When you study the disciples, now this is a picture from a, a church thing that they did, but I added bubbles. Because I, I think you need to know uh, that there's a place at the table for all of us. Okay? Alright. So yeah, Bartholomew, he was known as opinionated. He had an opinion on everything. We had James, he was described most often as ordinary. Kind of go with slow, ordinary guy. Andrew, well, he was known as the follower and chameleon. Whatever was being said at the moment, he was all in. So somebody changed his mind, he was all in again. So he was a constant chameleon. Peter, he was known as impulsive and well, he had a big mouth. 
Lord, God likes me more than you. Right. So, uh, Judas, he was materialistic and unloyal. He proved himself out pretty quick, didn't he? John was a passionate critic. Again, if he would be a great, he was like political. He had a political edge to him. He was very passionate. Thomas, he was pessimistic and a bit of a cynic. He was the guy in the crowd that he had out of work. He was the guy that says, well, he said he would rise, but really didn't believe it. James, he had a bad temper. He didn't put up with a whole lot. He was the one that, do you remember when Jesus was around the tree with the children and Jesus was speaking? And then James and all told the kids, hey, shh, get out of here. And Jesus had to say, hey, James, knock it off. Let the children come to me. It's okay. It's all right. Let them enjoy themselves in my presence. I'm okay with that. He had to tone him down because James was all business. He was ready to take care of some stuff. Philip, he was practical. He liked evidence. Show me. Prove it. Matthew, he kind of, he was a bit rejected. He had had a lot of things happen. He was kind of hard to encourage. Thaddeus, well, he was very dramatic. Everything is going to just go terribly. They're after us. We don't have enough loads. We don't have enough fishes. He was that guy. And then Simon, well, he was just overzealous. The overzealous and that's divisive. You know how you ever meet people that are passionate about something, and by the time they get finished talking to you about it, you're like, please stop. Is there a place at the table for each one of us? Yes. I think that's what's important about understanding the disciples, is that Jesus did not pick the perfect people. He picked the people who actually probably represented all of us the best. Because we all fall somewhere in those categories on a daily basis. So, what would be in your bubble if you were sitting at that table? <laughs> I don't need you to tell me. I don't want to know because I don't want to tell you what's in my bubble. But, <laughs> but what would be in your bubble? The point is you have one. The point is Jesus will meet you where you are. The point is it's okay that you have a bubble, but the challenge is recognizing it. Recognizing that what you think and how you feel and how you act has to fall under the authority of Christ. Has to be willing to change. Has to be willing to manifest into who God has called you to be. Instead of just saying, that's the way I am. <coughs> because the way you are without Christ isn't the best you can be. Jesus' primary call to the disciples was really simple and clear. Two words he spoke to every single one of them. Follow me. One translation, come to me. But most, follow me. He knew that he had to encourage them and to build them up and that we had to be taught how to build one another up. But as he looked at each one of those disciples, he simply said, follow me. And if you read the passages further, he never asked twice. He didn't have to beg them. And what he was asking them was, hey, step away from what you're doing completely and come with me. Literally, follow me. There's no sale tonight. There's no cooler with stuff in it. No air conditioning. We're talking sandals. Go. There was a, a commitment level in the follow me. Let me teach you. Well, they don't want to All right. We are not talking about this. All right? For those of us, the generational element here, a follow me thing has to do with social media. You'll hear it all the time now. Oh, yeah, so many followers. 
Jesus is walking around going, oh, I have 1.42 million followers, follow me. <laughs> no, it's very personal, individual. It wasn't, hey, look at what everyone else is doing. Don't you feel silly for not coming? No, it was very personal. You and me, follow me, let's go. He didn't go into the, hey, uh, hashtag a lot of people, hashtag Miss 12, hashtag going to be fantastic. Hashtag resurrection, you don't know what it is yet, follow me. <laughs> no, it was not that. It was very personal. But following Jesus for many people is hard. But what really makes it hard is that we want direction without relationship. You want Jesus to direct your life. You want him to please answer you. But we don't want to have a relationship with him. We have a better relationship with our television than we do with Jesus. We know what time stuff's on. We know what time it's going to happen. We have to make sure our DVR is set. We don't want to miss it. Hey, who's going to vote off this week? we got to watch. Got a DVR. Get some stars. You know who's on there. I mean, we know more about that than we do about Jesus. Than we do about how to have a relationship with him. And what does that look like? We can set an hour aside to watch something, but we can't set five minutes aside to talk to the one who can change everything. That's all of us. And we all, all, including me, we all fall into that. Life gets busy, stuff happens, crisis, mayhem. We are in a constant, my life sometimes is a constant attitude of prayer and just almost a murmur in my thought, God, please help me. Help me, Jesus. But taking time to build that relationship, to understand that he always keeps his promises. So I want to know what all those promises are because, man, if he always keeps them, I want to know what they are so that I can receive them too. Have you ever gone someplace? It's almost like Bush Gardens. You go to Bush Gardens and, and then somebody else has been to Bush Gardens the same day and, and they come home with a, a weird hat or a giant cup or a spoon or a thing. And they're like, oh my God, it's free. And you say, what? I didn't know that. We are better on that. Why did I know that? I was not in the know. I had not invested in knowing where to go, or that I had to go to the best house behind the giant pickles with the pretty stuff. I did not know. Because I had not invested any time in trying to know. Does that make any sense at all? I know it's a weird analogy, but there's so many things that, that Jesus has for you, so many promises that he wants to keep, but he needs you to know them. He needs you to, to be able to talk to him and be able to say, Lord, help me. And then because you know the promises, you expect it. Like when those disciples sat there and they were watching Jesus, like, oh, he's going to do it, he's going to do it. They knew. They knew he could. They knew he had. And they really expected him to do it. They had the benefit of seeing it. Through scripture, we have the benefit of seeing and knowing the witnesses that were before us who saw and know. And if we look around in our own lives, kind of like that movie about the girl that fell out of the tree and hit her head and the tumor was gone, there are signs and wonders all around us. We just sometimes don't take the time to see and acknowledge that that's who it is. When I was at a stoplight on 134 and something said, I'm usually extreme, I know. But something said, wait! And as I stopped, a dump truck full ran the light. Had I gone, I would not be standing here. That was a miracle in my life. It may not matter to anybody else, but me and mine, it probably matters. But God is doing those things in your life every day. I can say, oh, that was coincidence. Mm -hmm. Oh. No, thank you, God. You speak, I heard, I 
stopped. Thank you. I didn't question what the voice was. I didn't get wrapped around the angle. What could that have been saying? I listened and trusted him. Recognize the voice. The relationship helps you recognize the voice. So come to me, follow me. Then he appointed the twelve, and it said that he might be, that they might be with him. With is indicative of relationship. And that he might send them out to preach and to have the power to heal the sick and to cast out demons and all sorts of things. He said, greater things that I have done, you will do. Notice that Jesus' relationship with his disciples preceded his assignment to them. He wanted to have relationship with them. He wanted them to be confident. He wanted them to be empowered. He wanted them to know, you can do this. I'm giving you the authority to do this. Through me, you can do all things. But he had to have relationship with them so that several things, they didn't go in unconfident and afraid. He needed them to, to believe in the power of God. And he also needed to make sure that along the way, they didn't get misled into thinking it was about them. Because it wasn't. A good, solid relationship with Jesus will help you know that as you hand out your bags, and somehow you have the right thing to say to the crazy guy on the corner that you've never spoken to before, that that's God speaking through you. And though you walk away feeling a whole lot better than when you got out of the car, isn't it amazing how that happens? You feel so much better. Something inside just lights up. That's Jesus. That's Jesus operating through you. That's that touch of the Holy Spirit. That's that glimmer and glimpse of the power of God. It's the hem of the garment that changed everything. We have the option to touch that every day, that hem of the garment, to grab it and say, God, make me whole. Give me your, give me your voice. And he'll do it. Discipleship requires relationship. It is being before doing. Be with him. Before. Stepping out. Maturity before ministry. Does that mean, oh gosh, I gotta go to theology school? No, 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 no. It means spend enough time with God to know where your hot buttons are. I can't tell you how many people go to witness to their own family and they go at Thanksgiving and they say, oh, I need to talk to my brother in law because he's really And I'm like, how many? We're back to this maturity before ministry. You know where he is, know where you are. Don't argue about it, just believe it. I have to tell people more than once. I said, what should I take? I said, well, but I tell you what not to take. Don't take matches. Matches, you know, those things where we say, oh, well, they like to do this. And he does that. And we start lighting those matches on that strike box and throwing them in their direction and say, boom, what are we going to get next? How many Thanksgivings have had a, a tender pile in the middle of the table waiting for someone to strike that right match to get everybody wound up? you're going with maturity into the into your ministry, whatever it is and whoever you're speaking to, then you're going to be not you're going to not be easily offended. You're going to exhibit some grace. You're going to give them some mercy because we've all needed it. And character, not selfishness. The character and nature of Christ. I like him picking up the fish and he takes it over there. He didn't walk over there all pompous. I think all of those things, when, we're, when we've done television shows, we've done movies about the life of Jesus, we've been very careful of the countenance in which he carried himself. Because he's confident, but he's not arrogant. So to pick up the fish and walk over and go, he was trying to help him know, I, dude, I'm not going to hit you. 
intensity of personal activity of helping each other experience a growing relationship with God and discipleship. We can each not only be disciples, but disciple. So if you are talking to someone about God, does that mean you have to know everything? Nope. Sometimes the places where you can disciple someone the best are the places where your life has been an absolute nightmare. When bad things have happened, and you've lived through it, and there's a fingerprint of God in your life that said, look what I have come through, look what I have gone through, look what God has done for me. Those are the places where many times you can disciple someone. Someone who says, this happened, and I don't know how I'm, I can't breathe in and out anymore. I don't know how I'm going to make it through the day. And then you say, well, let me tell you about my life. Let me share with you in a relationship moment. This is what happened with me. This is what God did for me. You become the leper to the centurion. You understand? The leper, when he turned his hand over and it was completely healed. When you tell your story, when you say, these are the things I have gone through, when you share but for a moment, here is where I was. Jesus did this for me. I am whole now. I'm working towards completion. I realize God still has a work to do in me, but boy, am I a long way from where I was. In that moment, you are a powerful testimony. You are beginning to become a discipler because you're speaking from experience with Jesus. So was it a statement or a question? And Jesus looked at him and said, follow me. And he looked at us and said, follow us, follow me. Is this a statement or a question? Well, I found it interesting with the tax collector. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew, and he was the tax collector. Let me clear that up. Tax collectors were not like them, and they're probably not like them now. <laughs> that was probably one of the least favorite people in town was the tax collector. So to make him a, a disciple candidate was really risky because now he was really taking what most people just could not stand in his making. So he said, I'm a tax collector. And he looked at him and he said, follow me. And it says that he told him and Matthew got up and followed him. He didn't say, come on, follow me. Let me tell you why. Let me explain what's going to happen. Let me give you a big picture. Let me tell you what my followers told me. He didn't, there wasn't a whole lot. It was follow me. And there was just something there. There was a peace and a power and an authority that they just wanted something to do with. There was a, there was a desire. So the tax collector, he lived a pretty nice life. He had a nice, he had a nice house. And, you know, he had a nice family. And he had a nice family. He had all that. Kind of like, you know, he, he, lived, he lived a good life. But it wasn't fulfilling. It wasn't fulfilling. Discipleship is a decision for a relationship with Christ, not a quest for perfection. None of the disciples were perfect. That's why I showed you that table of all of them sitting there. None of them were perfect. Life is a, it's an ongoing journey. It's not a destination. When, when you choose to be the disciple of Christ, your life changes from day to day. God is with you from day to day. And as he is discipling you and you are discipling others, it's this constant funnel of, God help me, now I can help someone else. But you never arrive. I think that's why some people find it hard to follow Jesus. They want everything perfect. Life is not perfect. Life is hard. But Jesus will help you through all of those things. Ephesians, in the Message Bible, had it simply stated, God wants us to grow up. That's kind of harsh, isn't it? But maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is that call to, hey, I have something 
disciple with me. That you want to follow me. That you want to hear what I'm saying so I can take you to that next place. Every Christian, including all of us, is both the disciple and the discipler. You have a privilege and honestly a responsibility to be both the teacher and the learner. No matter where you are in your walk with God, there's two things that happen. As you are walking with Jesus and you've known him all your life, you still have things that God can teach you. Still, you ever notice, I went to a garage sale once and there was a Bible sitting on the table. I think it was a quarter. And my friend that was with me said, you're selling your Bible? And his comment was, yeah, I've read it. <laughs> there are scriptures that I read today at this stage of my life that mean so much more to me now and have a whole new meaning than they did 20 years ago. You never arrive at a point with the Bible where it's obsolete. You never arrive where it doesn't have something to specifically speak to where you are. But you don't know that unless you spend some time with it. Spend a minute, if that's all you can muster. Read a scripture. Let it speak to you. The ones that you highlighted and underlined 20 years ago, you look at it and you go, oh my goodness, oh, I remember that, but boy, am I glad I'm not there anymore. Man, this means something new to me now. I see more clearly now. And if you're young in the Lord, if you're just now saying, I accept the Lord, I've heard him say, follow me, I want to follow him, I'm trying to learn. As you are sharing with other people, hey, I did this, but I don't do it anymore because I'm trying to be obedient. Every time that you are talking about those things to people, you know, I, I've sat with people that said, you know, I used to, I used to be a, a gambler and I did all these things and all this stuff, and now I, God has really changed my heart and I don't desire it anymore. And as they're talking to the person next to them, there's their buddy who's got the same issues. And he's like, man, don't you miss it? It's usually the question, don't you miss it? And I have to say, no, are you kidding me? I'd rather be here than there, that's for sure. Even he's young in the Lord. He's young and understanding all of God's promises. He's young and, and growing and, and nurturing this relationship. But he's had that experience, that leper moment. He's had it where he says, oh my gosh, I wouldn't go back for anything. That's a powerful testimony in and of itself to the person that he's talking to, to his friend that he's known forever, who's seen him at his happiest in crazy places. To look at him and say, oh man, that was nothing. This is so much better. So maybe it's time to take a step beyond what you think you can handle and beyond what you're capable of or comfortable with and place your feet firmly in the steps of Jesus. I always, I have one of those, you know, the footprints in the sand thing and it goes all and it went to one path that was in Terry. But if he called us to follow him, I so appreciate his embrace and willingness to carry me. But I would so love to get to a place like that. Channel things. Oh, they got mommy, follow me. 
And we as viewers know, we, ugh, I'm very afraid of that. <laughs> but when Jesus says, follow me, he's not going to walk so far ahead you can't keep up. He's not going to leave you in the lurch. He's not trying to say, oh, for goodness sakes, come on.
you're in faithful service in earnest. Because when you follow, you know you're called, and you know you're chosen, there's something happens inside that empowers you to be bold in places you never thought you would be. And to be confidently walking through your life no matter what happens. And then when you get to the end, you say, God, you know, I'm so glad to see you. And he looks at you and he says, you're in faithful service, enter in. It isn't about the grandeur of what you accomplish as much as the power of the relationship you have. So, just like the leper, Jesus will come to meet you and meet you where you are. So I would hate for any of us or anybody that you personally know or whatever to get to Easter and think it's just all about money, right? When I saw a thing on TV the other day, it was on CNN, and they were doing what they call man on the street, mock, man on the street. We used to do that news all the time. That's where you walk randomly up to somebody and you ask them a question just to see what they'll say. And they said, hey, uh, Easter, what's Easter mean to you? And of course, there was bunny rabbits and Cadbury eggs and this and that. But the one guy that stuck out is he said, oh, it's a ridiculous religious tradition. Such a myth. I felt sorry and sad for him all at once. But he missed the glory and the power of what's coming. The celebration of the Easter that's coming. He's not experienced the resurrection yet. And that's something we all have to understand. There are people who've yet to realize the tomb is empty. So I just want to encourage us today. Prepare your heart for Easter. Let this be different. Jesus is not in the tomb. He is a resurrected Lord and Savior. He is working in our lives every day. I think the challenge is for us not to put him back, not to diminish his capability of power in our lives by just pushing him aside and saying, well, he's the last servant to do the perfect. Let's pray. God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you, Lord, that you, uh, that you do love us so much. And that though, God, it's hard to watch and hard to talk about when we talk about crucifixion, when we talk about all that you went through, Lord, I know that you did all of that for me. You did all of that for each and every one of us individually here today. For everyone that we don't know, God, you did it for all of us. You made a way. You were not making it difficult. You were making it easy. Easy for us to just say, Lord, I, I appreciate you. I, I want to follow you. I need you in my life. God, any of us here today who have not said, yes, Lord, I will follow you. I pray, God, that you would touch the hearts right now and, and in a new way, even if it's re in a rededicating moment right now to go, yes, God, I follow you. I need you as my Lord and personal Savior. I need your direction. I need your willingness to help me. I need my, my leper moment. God, you know all the people that are here, Lord. You know all the intimate details of our lives. God, we all have a leper moment where we need your loving touch. You are not afraid of anything we bring to you. You have an answer for all of us. So God, right now, anyone here today, Lord, who just needs to say, yes, Jesus, I pray for them right now that in their hearts they would say, Lord, please come into my life. Help me to hear you clearly and follow your lead. God, we love you. We are grateful.